Hi, welcome to the Accidental Marketer podcast. I'm Mary Abazia, and I'm joined by Tom Spitali, my partner and co-author of The Accidental Marketer. And uh, with us also is Sean Wellham, who heads up our European operation for our firm, Impact Planning Group. Um, hi, Sean. Hi, Tom. Hey, Mary. Hey, Tom. Hey, guys. Hey, okay, so we're all here. Um, this podcast, as all of our podcasts are designed for this accidental marketer who may be you or it's somebody that you are working with. And we are taking deep dives into our book, The Accidental Marketer. This chapter that we're focusing on is chapter 10, and it's about reinventing a commodity, uh, which is very interesting for a lot of reasons. This is our final chapter of our book. And it, uh, all the work that you do in chapters one through nine really allows you then to open the door to what you're going to do in 10. So, Tom, can you talk a little bit about the elements of a great value prop and what, what this all means? Yeah, we, we named chapter 10 Reinventing a Commodity because there's a, a, a case study you can, you can look up uh, and, and read in the book about Starbucks. But it really is a chapter about the value proposition. And the elements of a great value proposition, we consider the four P's of product, pr price, promotion, and place. Uh, we're going to focus a little bit more on one of the P's in this podcast because the fact is that we've spent a bit of time on some previous podcasts talking about the other three P's. For example, we talked a lot about product and specifically the whole product in the podcast for chapter eight. Um, and, and, and so that's really about how do you design your product for different segments and think about, you know, lots of things beyond just the core product. Place is about who or where you sell your products. And we spent a lot of time talking about that in Chapter 2's podcast, really around influence mapping. And in our mystery podcast, Number 2, we talked a lot about promotion and specifically about the new arena of social media and how it relates to B2B promotion. So since we've covered those three already, that leaves one P that is really emotional and very interesting to people. Which one is that, Mary, and why? <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course it's price. And, um, you know, and, and we, we put some words around price because we really believe it's value-based pricing. Um, which fits in with what Tom is saying is, is if you figure out the value, then this is more of the equation. Um, and one of the tools that we use when we look at price is um, the perceived value analysis. And it takes into account the ability to compete that we talked about and, um, and then brings in your options on pricing. And we want to give a shout out to Bradley Gale. He's the father of this analysis. And there's a lot of great books that he's written on this. So if you love this, look him up and find his books. Um, but we're going to explain how it really fits with our methodology even more. Sean, can you describe how we use that PVA and in when we're working with groups and trying to figure out what what's the right price to charge? Yeah, essentially the, the, the PVA recycles some of the information that we've already got. It's the ability to compete score that we talked about on an earlier podcast. So we've already got this this measure of, of, of how well we deliver our offer to the customers and we can relate that to how well our competition also do it. So we use that on the 
on the x-axis, if you like, on the y-axis, we, we take a look at the price and we can put each competitor's price on there. So we have this two-dimensional space. Now, what's really cool about the PVA is if you draw a um, a 45-degree angle line from the, the intersection of the axis up, you get what we call the fair value line, which is a rough indication of, of where you should maybe price given the level of, of value that you're adding to customers. And obviously, the more value you add, the higher the price you should be able to charge. So what it puts into simple terms is, is how you relate both to this somewhat notional fair value line, but more importantly, how you relate to your competitors by comparing the prices that they charge with yours and the value um, or the benefits, if you like, they're delivering compared to yours as well. I love it. Um, and then we, as we've been using it, Tom, you you have some really fun examples of companies using it and really working. Can you share a, a couple of those those examples? Well, maybe I should start with where, one spot where it wasn't working because sometimes okay, those are just as instructional as, um, and then and then we'll we'll talk about some good examples later. Look, the reason that companies don't use analysis like this is they think that they don't have the ability to measure value or the amount of differentiation that they have. So they, they base their pricing practices on their cost or on competitors' pricing. And when we show them, as Sean mentioned, the ability to compete, which actually quantifies that x-axis, they get some real surprises. Um, one of the situations that Sean and I found ourselves in in the UK a couple of years back was a situation where when a company finally measured the value that they were delivering and plotted against their premium price, they came up with a, a, a really um, scary <laughs> discovery. Sean, do you want right. to talk about what, what scared them and what was going on with the pricing in that particular market? Yeah, well, what's interesting about this tool is, you know, we, we mentioned this notional fair value line and and you can have a, a very well-functioning market with people in different sectors. You know, you can have people that are offering less benefits to the customers, but charging a lower rate for it. And you can have people offering a huge range of benefits, but charging a higher price. This is the, the, the luxury market, if you like, the premium market versus the budget market or the, the more standard market. Um, so in that particular case that you're talking about, Tom, we had a, a, a brand that had been very successful over a long period of time. We're talking decades and we're losing market share. And when they compared their, um, their competitors, one of their competitors actually had both a premium and a budget offering and they'd sort of sandwiched them and left them in no man's land. You had this competitor that was offering much more in the way of perceived value. This is a key. This is why the chart's called the perceived value analysis. The customers perceived a much higher value and were prepared to pay a higher price for it, and that took care of, if you like, the premium end. But they also had a brand that that offered a more basic offering, a more traditional offering. But they priced that very low. So they had this portfolio approach to pricing. Now our client was stuck right in the middle, as being perceived as neither the luxury nor the the budget brand. Um, but was having their market share eaten on on both sides. They they realized that they were being outflanked. I mean, the real shame was, from our perspective, it was a brilliant piece of strategic execution. It just happened to be 
the other guy that was doing it at the time, right? Yeah, and it, it, what the net result of it is is that they seemed overpriced because they had a premium a premium price. The, the the competitor was even more premium priced, but people thought that the competitor's product was the true premium deal. They really thought that our client's brand was sort of you know mid priced in no man's land, but with a premium price, and they were overpriced and they lost a significant amount of share. Uh, right away yeah it was it was a classic case of 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 charging a lot for the the fact that you'd been around for a long time you know when you're the market leader it can be a little bit illusionary and you think we're the market leader we have the biggest share of this market and 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 your pricing sometimes reflects that i i can we say a little bit of arrogance maybe maybe that you take your eye off the ball but you you price based on your past experiences but when you do this analysis and they realize that in reality even if the competitors weren't there, they could have seen that they were actually charging a premium over and above that which might seem to be normal within the market. And that's a vulnerability. You know, sometimes the, the clues there ahead of time, they could have got ahead of that problem maybe by using this tool. Yeah. Yeah. One of the one of my favorite things is to look at generics in the market, you know, especially pharma. And a lot of times, um, the the thought when they look at their PVA is, oh, look at this uh, generic is priced this much lower. If we lower our price just a little bit, we'll get a little bit closer. And the danger of that is, is often generics have one strategy, and that's to be 20, 20%, 30% below whatever is in the market. So if you're one of the established brands and you lower it, they're just going to simply lower it. So it it is a uh, profitless <laughs> bottom that uh, that you're going for. So I like what you were saying about don't just look at the downside of it, but there are a lot of competitive ways that companies can uh, can move towards the add more value and add a higher price and make sure customers are willing to pay for that. So I, I like that as an example. Um, hey, Mary, I, I love, you know, since we uh, we promised some, some success stories or some good pricing cases, yep. before I talk about a couple of them, the one that I, I love that you talk about is with the... Um, the 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 uh, cartel <laughs> story that you, can you can you share that one is that yeah. shareable yeah i think it is i think it is it's in the chemicals business i guess is the best way to say it and um and one of the companies that was an established brand and they were helping their clients quite a bit um and the uh, the cartel came in and said we want the lowest price you have and, um, you know, it took a little bit of thinking about segmentation and about value. And when we stepped back, we said, fine, you know, you can have that molecule and they changed the name to just call it a molecule and not the brand. And then they stripped out everything around it, everything from the packaging. They said, you can, you can pick it up in drums. And by the way, it'll be on a dock. We're not delivering it to you. And there are no terms in terms of um, us financing you in any way at all. And uh, you're not involved in, you know, some of the special new stuff that we're doing or special promotions. You aren't privy to any of that. And um, there, there's a, a number that you can call, but we're, you know, we're actually, they didn't even get the number. They got a, I think they got an email. So they stripped everything. They lowered the price and they were still profitable in that segment that allowed them to even do more things with their established group in terms of education and helping them with digital, all the new stuff that was coming out. So it really worked across their portfolio, but they had to think about the value that was delivered 
to those two different segments in very different ways. And it takes a lot of discipline, but it was phenomenal success. So yeah, thank you for asking about that. Um, tell me about your other story that you were thinking about, Tom. Yeah, so we, so we talked about uh, the sad story of being overpriced uh, with, that Sean and I discovered with our client in the UK. And then we talked about playing really, um, I, I guess, overtly at the low end of the price value with your, your cartel story, Mary, where you, where you pull out value and charge a low price and still you know, can have a, a, a profitable, equation, profitable equation. Just two quick uh, cases where people happily discovered that they were underpriced, not it's not a, never a happy story when you haven't charged enough in the past, but when you can rectify that um, and and uh, and benefit from it, it's always great. So we we were in in China where one of our clients was going to debut a product called um, well it was it was targeted at picky eaters, and they found that in the Chinese market, the marginal cost of research is less than a lot of places. In other words, they were able to do that x-axis, that ability to compete that value score uh, against their prospective value proposition and figure out with a high level of confidence that they were truly differentiated in the market, especially with a particular segment that they were targeting. And they discovered when they used the PVA that they were pricing the equivalent of about five cents in U.S. dollars too low with the planned pricing they had with this product, uh, and so as a result of the PVA analysis, they upped their their price about you know five cents um, and hit all and it actually exceeded all of their projections and made the equivalent of millions and millions of U.S. dollars by going out with a higher price than they expected because that's just such a huge market. Um, another quick story was uh, a company that we worked with in, in, a, in a B2B industry. They provided education, B2B education around software and software development. They found by using a PVA and comparing themselves to their competitors that they were offering tremendous value more than the competitors at about the same price. They were able to then use that PVA analysis to raise their prices without losing any bit of, of share or attendance in their courses and made hundreds of thousands of dollars without really doing much more of anything. So those are always great stories when we find them. I love it. I love it. One of the things that um, when we do talk about this, uh, we go into a, we go into a session and you know, we call it the three C's, you know, that a lot of the companies that we work with have so much value they've created. They're oozing in, in the value that they've created. They may actually even be communicating the second C, um, but often it's in their lingo and not in the customer's lingo. So that's where it really starts to fall apart. And then they, you know, even if they do really well on the create and the communicate, when they get to the capture, which is pricing, they just disconnect it and um, and they they lose all the opportunities that they've done. So, you know, if you think you have a pricing problem, it is good to step back first and say, do we create something the value prop? Hopefully, that's um, differentiated for the segment you're targeting. And then, by the way, are we communicating in a way that is relevant and compelling to that group? And then the capturing is that third C. So those three Cs seem to help. Sean, anything to add to best practices in pricing or value prop? I think 
you know, I think the one thing that always comes back, and it, it, I, I guess I see it less and less these days, but it, it's it's the overall pricing approach that people take. You know, the when I started out, I remember the the the, the pricing process, what they used to call costing, was was taking your cost, deciding what margin you wanted, and adding that on a cost up pricing, which you still see around the place. And of course, that might tick the box of what return on investment you want for your business, but it totally ignores the value that you're creating. And it's a recipe for leaving money on the table. Um, And the other way is just taking your cue from the competitors and deciding that the market dictates the price. And while that's probably more true, and it has to be a factor, um, it's focusing on on the the PVA chart and, and taking a look at the price versus the perceived value that people are receiving um and if you find yourself marking up from cost base just check yourself and, and say let's let's look at this from the customer's perspective not from yeah ours. to add to that um tom had mentioned a lot of companies don't do this because it's hard to measure value so to your point sean is if i get past that cost you know i have to do it but i have to do it later you know and competitors but if i need to focus first outside in on the customer how do I know what the value is? And um, so the PVA is one out, one tool. Some of the other tools that we use um, is called the Van Westendorf, Van Westendorf model. And that's great if you even just want to know what bands, the upper and lower bands you may want to consider for pricing. If it's a new product or it's something that is pretty, pretty different in a market space. Um, and then the other thing is a conjoint analysis and conjoint analysis allows you to actually measure value at a util, if you will, or at an element of each of the pieces of your offer. So you can see where there is the most value and where you may be able to, as I had told earlier with that uh, cartel story, there are pieces that you can strip out and it won't make any difference to the client. So those are some other tools that you may want to look at if you really want to do this right. Um, Tom, any closing thoughts on this? I would just say that the most important input I think that I've found to the the PVA analysis is that ability to win. And, and as you've both mentioned, so... Um, I would recommend podcast for chapter six, where we talk significantly about that because that's a, a critical piece to getting pricing right. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Um, we hope that you've enjoyed this and we look forward to having you join us on future podcasts. We would love to hear about any topics that uh, you'd like for us to cover. Um, thank you.